Welcome. We are uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, we're looking at the crossroads that we face, and, and today we're going to dive in, uh, continue in Matthew 5, but we're going to go into a little deeper place in Matthew 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 48, and I'm going to tell you right now, when we get to verse 48, it's not good. So just be prepared. The, the verse 48 to me is like one of those old Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons where the Roadrunner goes into the tunnel and the Coyote follows him in and then all of a sudden the Coyote sees this light coming at him and it's a train and the train hits the Coyote. We all get to be the Coyote this morning. So just be prepared for that. It's just the, the joy of what's on the horizon. Hey, will you stand with me as we read? Um, I'm going to read verses 43 through 48, but we're actually going to look at verses 21 through 48 today in Matthew 5. So Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here comes the train. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we hear these words, and, and, and Lord, we know that you're up to something. We know you're doing something. You're constantly working. But these words are a little bit hard to grasp sometimes. And so, God, I pray that, that as we explore your word here in Matthew 5, that you open our hearts, you open our minds, you enlighten us, you, you lead us into the depth of your truth, and free us to be the people that you've created us to be in your son. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. So, so there's this little book. It's a, it's a fun little book. Um, it's exciting to read because it, it's, it's just, well, I'll tell you what the title of it is, and I'll tell you what it's about, and then you'll go, yeah, that would be a good read. It's a book called The Glory of His Presence. It's by a guy named Dr. John D. Shiver. And it's a book that tells the story of revivals throughout the history of the church. And so you can get this book, and it's, it's like a, a, a catalog of all these different revivals that have happened in different times in different places around the world. And, and one of the stories in this book is the story of the 1904 Welsh Revival. Has anybody heard of this? 1904 Welsh Revival. So it, it's a it was started, obviously, in 1904. It was followed the teachings of a guy named Roberts. And in less than one year, over 
100,000 people in South Wales committed to apprentice themselves to Jesus. 100,000 people in a year in 1904 without social media, without TikTok. He wasn't making cool little dance videos and getting people to follow Jesus because of his sick dance moves. But, but some of the effects of this revival are really incredible. This is the part I like about reading about this revival. What happened around this area as a result. So, the year after the revival started in South Wales, there was a 50% reduction in public drunkenness arrest. Half the people who were getting drunk and arrested the year before stopped. And we don't know what they were doing, but they weren't getting drunk and getting arrested. Prostitution literally ceased in the area where the revival was happening. The courts began to shut down because they did not have cases to try. And the judges began to intentionally wear white gloves everywhere they went because they said there was no dirt for them to touch anymore. At soccer matches. Now, has anybody ever been to a European soccer match, particularly English? or well, Yeah, so this, this will resonate with you if you've been there. At soccer matches, the people began to sing hymns instead of the normal chants that, they've used, that they used to sing. Now, if you're a fan of the English Premier League, you know that those chants are not things you would say in front of your mama because you'd get your mouth washed out with soap. It went from these racy chants at soccer games to hymns. And you know what? Still today, the tradition at, Scottish, at, at uh, soccer games in Wales is that they sing hymns. Now, the difference is nobody knows why, and they don't know what the hymns mean, but they still sing them. But here's my favorite part about this revival. This is the most entertaining part about the revival to me. It had a huge impact on donkeys. Yeah, I said donkeys. You see, so this part of South Wales where this revival started was a coal mining area. And they used the donkeys to pull the carts in and out of the coal mines to haul coal out and bring the workers in. Well, after the revival, all the donkeys had to be retrained. Here's why. The donkeys had been trained on foul language and beatings. The coal miners, as a result of the revival, stopped beating the donkeys and cussing at them. So the donkeys wouldn't respond. They had to be retrained to respond to kindness and wholesome talk. Because they couldn't get them to move without the bad words. It's like, holy cow? Nope, holy donkey. But here's the thing. From what I've read about this uh, revival, this 1904 Welsh revival, it took people by surprise. They weren't expecting it. And it was documented in newspapers all over Europe and they shared the story of it everywhere. And it had an impact that has lasted for decades in South Wales. And as I read about it, it doesn't really surprise me though. I think I know exactly what happened. Everything that Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 21 through 48 happened in South Wales. But not in the way many of us think it happens. See, we have a tendency to seek to be good and we can look at it and say, these coal miners became so good, they wouldn't cuss at the donkeys anymore. And we strive to be good, and we want to have a good character, and we, we want to have this sense of goodness about ourselves. And being good is not bad. But being good is not the best thing. Nor is it the greatest goal of Jesus for us. 
See, that brings us to the crossroads that we have to face this morning. And as we continue in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, our crossroads today is good or holy. What are you trying to be? Are you trying to be good? Or are you trying to be holy? And last week we had to face the crossroads of what are Jesus' words in this sermon? Are they teaching or are they training? And so remember from last week what Jesus said, what Jesus did, he came to make us into what he teaches that we should be. So his words are training in that sense that he's teaching us what we should be, but he's making us into what he's teaching us that we should be. And so that crossroads today is good or holy. Are you going to pursue being good? Try to be a better person, do nice things, not cuss at the donkey so much anymore? Or are you going to allow Jesus to make you holy? That's the lens that we have to look at these verses, particularly Matthew 5.48, the train that hits us. We have to filter it through this idea of good or holy. So Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And a collective sigh of frustration rises up in the room because I know I can't be perfect. And I certainly know I can't be perfect as God is perfect. This is an absolutely impossible demand for me. See, I know me very well. I know that if good is good, but holy is best, and you want me to be holy like God, then I am doomed. Because I can't be good, much less holy, and certainly not holy like God. It's not possible. So then we have a choice. We can look at Jesus and say, hey, thanks for putting this impossible demand on me, and now I'm going to stand in my frustration. It's over. Or we can say, wait a minute. If your demand is impossible, is that really what you put on me? And so here's how we can decide whether or not this is an impossible demand or a possibility open to us through the life of Christ comes down to how I view holiness. What does it mean to be holy is the fundamental question that can free us to actually live Matthew 5.48. Because here's the thing, if you think holiness is a product of character, then you're going to go in one direction. But if you think holiness is a product of your disposition, then there's something else available. See, character is how I act, but disposition is where I act from. That thing in me, where all of my actions flow out of. Let me put it this way. A thief is not a thief because he steals. A thief is a thief because he is the kind of person who would steal given the opportunity. And you can take anything that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount and put it in that same logic. An adulterer is not someone who cheats on their spouse. An adulterer is someone who would cheat on their spouse given the opportunity. A murderer is not someone who murders, but someone who would, given the opportunity. Do you see what it's driving towards? Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is telling us your character needs to be good, but it has to come out of a place of holiness because disposition goes way deeper than just my actions. 
It's about the source of my actions. And so when we look at Jesus' words in verses 21 through 47 in Matthew 5, what we're going to see is they actually go right to the heart, to the disposition of us as people, not simply to our actions. This is not some clean it up, straighten up and fly right plan by Jesus. This is not an opportunity to be good and behave, but an opportunity to be changed. And I asked you last week to read Oswald Chambers' uh, uh, traditional and, and, and classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. I want to read you a quote from him about this very thing. Jesus Christ demands that the heart of a disciple be fathomlessly pure, and unless he can give me his disposition, his teaching is tantalizing. So when he says, you be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect, unless he can give me his own disposition, his own holiness in me, then I can do nothing with that. So that's where we have to realize we're moving towards today. See, disposition is exactly what Jesus is bringing up to the surface in each of his statements in these verses where he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say what he's driving towards is what's underneath it all. He's creating contrast between character and disposition. He's saying, hey, guys, you've done really well when you've obeyed God's law. The law is good. First Timothy 1.8, right? But I want you to come with me behind the law and to go to the core of your being, to your disposition. He's telling them, I want you to do good because you are holy, not because you know how to do good. It goes to a deeper place. And so I want to clarify this idea of what disposition is, because I think that can be hard for us. And I think we can look at it and say, you know, I am a good person. Based on what? Well, based on how I think of myself. Okay. That may or may not be reality. But we all, in our disposition, tend to think of ourselves as somebody who's moving towards goodness. But I'm going to use these verses to help you understand the difference between character and disposition on a deeper level. See, here's the thing. In each of the illustrations that Jesus uses in verses 21 through 47, he's giving examples of the difference between character and disposition. So verse 21, he says, don't murder. That's character, right? Don't have the kind of character that would kill another person just because you're mad at them. But then in verse 22, he says, don't use words or feelings to assassinate another's name or reputation. That's about disposition. Don't seek to harm others at all, but to reconcile with those you have issues with. Verse 27, don't commit adultery. Character. Don't have the kind of character to, that would make you into a person who would cheat on your spouse. But then verse 28, don't lust. That's about disposition. See others as valued image bearers of God, not objects just to use for your own pleasure. Now verse 31, we got to pause here for a minute to when we go over these two verses, 31 and 32 about divorce, because there is a dramatic difference between our cultural concept of divorce 
in the first century Jewish concept of divorce. See, in Jesus' day, in his faith, in his religion, divorce could only be initiated by men. Which is why here he says, whoever divorces his wife. Which means he's speaking to men here as women had no right to seek a divorce. And therefore, it would be unnecessary to tell them how to engage the process of getting a divorce. They didn't have the right to. They had no legal right to do that. And, and so that's true from either a character standpoint or a disposition standpoint. So here's what he's getting at in the character in this verse. Don't divorce your wife for any old trivial reason under the sun. That's what he's saying about the character issue here. Don't be the person who would say, because my wife has displeased me in some minor way, I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. But then we get to verse 32. He's bringing a reality into play here. That to divorce your wife has the potential to harm her. Well, you think? We all know that, right? But listen, in the first century Jewish context, life for a woman who's divorced was very hard. And oftentimes it led to prostitution just to survive. And so he's inviting husbands to have an orientation towards protecting their wives and guarding their character. That's the disposition. He wants to say to a husband who's, who's saying, hey, I'm a good person. I'm not going to divorce my wife for any old reason. I only would get divorced for these reasons that Moses said were the right reasons. And he's saying, yeah, that's, that's good. Be a good person. But I want to go to the disposition I want you to have the disposition of a husband who would be willing to lay down yourself in your marriage and love your wife the way Christ loves the church. And so these two verses on divorce are actually the authority behind Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, where Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. So I, I, I know in our cultural context, and I know that divorce is an issue that strikes many in this room. So I didn't want to leave that hanging out there. I wanted to explain it a little more deeply than the other examples he gives. But we have to understand that he's speaking in the context of his culture. We're interpreting in the context of our culture. And so if there are things in there that you look at and you go, but wait, I went through a divorce and, and, and my experience doesn't line up with these words. Maybe not, but all of our experiences are fallen. What Jesus has given us here is the perfect. So if, if you want to have a conversation around your experience of divorce over this, because anything I might have said this morning, just holler, let me know, and we'll, we'll sit down and have a conversation. But we go to verse 33. Don't take oaths you don't intend to keep. That's the character, right? Don't be the kind of person who makes promises just to get what you want. But then verse 34, he goes to disposition. Don't take an oath on heaven or an oath by heaven or earth. That's the disposition. Be the kind of person whose word is so solid that you don't need to take any type of oath to prove your truthfulness. Do you see the difference? You starting to see it? Character in the first part, disposition in the second in each one of these examples. Verse 38, don't be the one to start the violence. Character, be a good person and don't instigate violence, but only meet it when it comes at you. 
which was a good person in their culture. An eye for an eye. You slapped me, I slapped you back. I didn't slap you first, I'm good. But Jesus goes on and says, don't resist an evil person. He's getting to disposition now. Lay down your right to yourself the same way that Jesus laid down his rights to himself for God's glory. So if someone in this day came up and smacked you, you had the right to hit them back. Jesus is saying, but don't be the kind of person who's all about your own rights. Be the kind of person who's about God's glory. We get to verse 43. Don't hate your neighbors. This is a good one. We, we would go, oh yeah, that's not good, but we, we, we kind of live by this. Don't hate your neighbors, only hate your enemies. Yes, Lord, I agree. We can do that. That's the character issue that Jesus is highlighting here. Basically what he's saying is, look, don't be a jerk to the people that you have to live with. That was the law. That's what made someone a good person in the Jewish context. And in verse 44, Jesus goes to the deeper place. Don't hate anybody, not even your enemies. Now he's getting to the disposition underneath it all. Have the same heart in you towards those who are against you as God has in himself towards those who are against him. Which, by the way, is all of us at some point. We've all stood against God at some point. And so what Jesus is saying is, have the disposition in you. Be the kind of person who would love even those who are against you. The same way God loves those who are against him. So hopefully at this point, what you're beginning to see is that Jesus is laying out two paths here. Do you want to be a good person, live by the law and do the right things? Or do you want to be holy? The kind of person who has a disposition that comes from the inside out towards holiness, towards godliness. He's saying, you guys have been trying to be good, but I want to make you holy. At this point in history, the Jewish people have a track record of being good based on Jesus's, or God's law to them. And Jesus is coming in and saying, but there's more. There's more. And He's saying, this is where the problem lies. You can be good and not be holy. And so my character, that, that's the, my actions and my behavior, my responses and my choices are actually a product of, of my habits. So I have absolute control over my character. I can make my character, I can refine it and train it through my habits. Good habits will yield a good character, Right? Bad habits will yield a bad character. We've all experienced it at different places in our lives. There are things I've looked at and said, that's not so good. I need to do something different. I want to be a kinder person. Let me start holding doors open for people. Let me start letting people out in traffic. Remember that when you leave here, by the way. I want to be a bad person. Let me start taking things from others that I want. Let me develop some habits of badness that will give me a bad character. Character is always a product of our habits. We have absolute control over our character. But here's the problem. I have no influence over my disposition. Unlike my character, which is formed by habits and training, 
My disposition is inherited. It's born into me. And it is for me and for all of us, born in me from my father Adam. That's where we all got our disposition. It was never intended to be that way. That's not how God designed it. Prior to the fall, the disposition that was in Adam and Eve was the same disposition of God. And after the fall, we all stand here with the disposition of Adam. Listen to this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have Adam's disposition in us. Through Adam, we've all been invited into a place where we live out of an unholy disposition. And so remember, disposition is my deep internal motivations and desires. It's the place that Jesus would refer to as the heart. Listen to this in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, where Jesus says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These verses in Matthew 15, 18, and 19 speak back to Matthew 5. What Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, 21 through 47 is resolving this problem that's in Matthew 15, 18, and 19. You got a heart issue. You need a heart transplant. Your disposition is the problem here. Jesus is saying, heart, the place where your disposition lives, the seat of all your motivations is your issue, not simply your character. Through our verses in Matthew 5 and these verses in Matthew 15, he's shifting the premium from be a good person, act right, obey the law, do good things, have a good character. He's shifting the premium from that to be holy. Be holy. This is what you need. Because I think all of us could look at places in our lives and go, yeah, I need to be a better person here and a better person here. I love Jesus, but I got these things going on. Sometimes they maybe aren't so great. But that's not what he's speaking towards here. He's not telling us to straighten up and fly right. What he's saying is you can't fly right. You cannot fly right. You need what I am in you. And so all that brings us back to Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't it funny how in the church we come up against some of these verses that we just kind of like to step over? We step right over them, seriously. When Jesus says, you must fill in the blank, or you must not, we go, oh yeah. Jesus said, don't get divorced. Why are you getting divorced? You can't get divorced. You're supposed to be a Christian. He said, you must not get divorced. Yeah, well, he said, you must be perfect. Let's treat them with the same weight. If that's where we're gonna go, if goodness is gonna be our template, then we gotta treat this stuff with the same weight. So the same thing that, that someone who says, you know, I, 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 Jesus said don't steal and you stole. Man, that's an issue. You're supposed to be a Christian. 
Well, Jesus said be perfect and you're not perfect. That's an issue. You're supposed to be a Christian. So all this has to carry the same weight. And here's where it happens. Because I can look at this verse in Matthew 5, 48, and hear Jesus go, therefore you must be perfect. And I'm like, yeah, I'm tapping out now. I'm done. I can't do it. There's no way. I can't be holy. But then what if the thing that Jesus is inviting me into, not to being frustrated with myself, but actually asking this question, what if what he's inviting me into is, but why can't I be holy? What if that's all he wants me to ask myself? Okay, Lord, you're telling me to be holy like God is holy, but here's my question for you. Why can't I be holy? You ever asked him that? Or have you just got on the treadmill and said, oh, he wants me to be perfect. He wants me to be holy. I better start running harder. Better start being better. And when I go to Jesus and say, Lord, I, I, you, you're telling me I need to be holy, but I can't be holy. Why can't I be holy? He'll go, oh, I'm glad you asked. I've been waiting for you to ask. You can't be holy because you have an unholy disposition. You have an unholy heart. You have an Adam heart. Ah, Lord, okay, thank you. That's good to know. And so now I realize it and I understand it. So then I can go to him and say, wait a minute. Why all of a sudden do I feel more hope? in the recognition that my heart is unholy, that my disposition is unholy, that my heart is a product of Adam, not you. And he'll go, well, here's why. Because once you know your disposition is the issue and that the gospel of God is not only that Jesus died for my sins, but he gave himself for me so that I can give myself to him, then I can actually and practically participate in the gospel life of Jesus here now. Do you see the hope in it? I go, Jesus, I want to be holy. I can't be holy. Well, of course you can't. Your heart's the issue. Your disposition's the issue. You got an Adam heart. Okay, well, what do I do then, Jesus, to get your heart in me? Well, he says it happens very simply. It's a process called repentance. Huh. Tell me more. Well, here's what repentance is. Because we think repentance is going before God and going, I did it again, Lord. What was that song? Who sang that song? Was that Britney Spears? Oops, I did it again. Standing before Jesus like Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. And Jesus looks at us and goes, it's okay. Go on, don't do it again. And we come back the next day and we turn Britney back on and crank it up a little louder. Oops, I did it again. And we expect Jesus to say, it's okay. See, we think that's what repentance is. We think repentance is, I went out, I messed up, I came back, said, hey, I messed up, forgive me. But here's what repentance actually is. Here's the starting point of repentance. Repentance starts when I acknowledge that my very disposition, the source of everything that is me, in me, is unholy. And once I acknowledge that everything that flows out of me comes from a place of unholiness, now I actually have something to give to God. Because we think that what we give to God is our goodness. We come to God and say, God, here's my goodness, I hand it to you. Here's my giving, I give it to you. Here's my, my serving, I give it to you. But you know what? That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God accepts my goodness. The gospel is that God can only accept my badness.
And here's why. Because once I say, here's my badness, God, I can't carry it. You have to. Then he can and will do something about it. And so the gospel is about the disposition, not the behavior. The gospel is about me coming to that place of repentance and going, I have a problem. My heart's unholy. My disposition is unholy. It is from Adam, and it has to go. And so here's all the badness that's in me, God. And then remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, Lord, for our sake, you made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we, I, me, might become the righteousness of you, God. Do you see the transaction that's taking place now? When repentance starts with my problem is I am unrighteous, I am unholy, I have a source in me that is a product of sin, that's a product of Adam, that was never supposed to be in me, but here it is, and here I am. And so the exchange that occurs in repentance is the exchange of my badness for Christ's righteousness. He takes on what I am so that I can become what he is. I give my badness to God and he gives me the holiness of Christ. So we have to step out of repentance as simply the moment where I go, oops, I did it again. And Jesus goes, it's okay. Go on about your business. Try harder. Don't mess up again. And repentance then becomes the moment where I stand before Jesus and go, we have a problem. We, you and I have a problem. And the problem is this. I am in a fallen world with a fallen nature, with a fallen heart, and I'm living out of that. So it is no wonder to me, Lord, that I do stupid stuff all the time. And he looks back and goes, yeah, it's no wonder to me either that you do stupid stuff all the time. And so repentance then is me going, I acknowledge that I need to be holy, not just good. And here's the other thing, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm not holy. And I'm going to give you my badness, my Adam-inherited heart. And so repentance is simply, I recognize I need to be holy. I acknowledge I'm not holy. And so here, Lord, is my badness. It's all I got to bring to you. All I can offer you is what's, what's wrong in me. And then God says, okay, I'll take it. But I'm going to give you something in exchange in return. I'm going to give you the solid goodness of Jesus. I'm going to give you his holy disposition in place of your unholy disposition. The very holiness I put in him, I'm now going to put in you. And all I want from you is to want it. Can you live there? Can you live in a place where God says, I'm going to change everything in you from the inside out, and you have an obligation, and that obligation is to want it. To come to the realization that you are not holy, to come to the realization you need to be holy, to come to the realization that I will take your unholiness and I will give you the holiness of my son Jesus if you want it. I think what we're hitting now is the biggest behavioral issue that we as Christians have. It's not how we act. It's what we want. It's desire. We have to train our desires towards Christ, not simply to getting better things in the world, to being a good person. 
We have to look at ourselves and go, Lord, all I want is to be holy the way that you're holy. Listen to this in Colossians 1, verse 27. To know them, God chose to make known, uh, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The glory of this mystery. This mystery I'm about to tell you is glorious. And here's the mystery, which is Christ in you. The glory of the mystery, Christ in you. And then what is that mystery? What is Christ in you? It is actually the hope of glory. Do you see the process of disposition exchange in this verse? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what is the glory that we can now hope for because Christ is in us? All the way back to the train in the tunnel. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But all of a sudden, the light's not a train anymore, is it? The light's an ambulance coming to scoop up the broken soul that's in me and exchange it for the very holiness of Christ. See, here's the question you have to ask yourself. Do I acknowledge that I have a need for a disposition exchange? Do I acknowledge I have a need for a heart transplant? Do you acknowledge that God is calling you to go beyond simply being good? He's calling you to holiness, to be holy as he is holy. The Sermon on the Mount as training will always lead to the disposition of Jesus actually being put in me. And that doesn't mean that I'll be perfect in my behavior, but it does mean that I'll begin to be transformed into holiness. First in my desire, my will, and my heart then in my thoughts, in my beliefs, in my mind, in my emotions, in my feelings, and then eventually in my choices and my behavior. Because where those choices come from will have been transformed, will have been exchanged with the holiness of Jesus. Now you've got to understand that it's not necessarily going to be quick, and I hope it's not easy, because if it's easy for you, then I've got to accept the fact that you're better than I am, because it hasn't been easy for me. And I really don't want to look around and go, you guys are all better than me. So, I hope it's not easy, and I don't think it will be. But here's why it's not easy and it's not quick. Because the foulest stench in the nostrils of Satan is the smell of the holiness of God on earth. And that scent comes from God's people desiring the holiness of Jesus in our very lives. And so, where Satan smells that, he's most assuredly going to attack. As your life begins to smell of the holiness of Christ, he will come at you. He will pursue you. And we need to be people who seek the holiness of God anyway. We need to be people who desire to live out of the disposition that Jesus placed in us, not the one we inherited from Adam. We need to be people who say, I want to be holy and I just don't want to simply be good. I don't need Jesus to be good. By the world's standards, I can be good without him. That's the whole premise of the lost, isn't it? A lost person will look at the lowest common denominator and say, I'm a good person. Look, I'm not a child molester. Wow. Great. Man of the year. 
But that's what we do when we're lost. We find the lowest place and compare ourselves to that because we think the answer is to be good. And now you've got to remember this too, that living out of the disposition of Jesus actually takes practice. It begins with repentance and it continues as we love God passionately because here's why. You will always seek to be with the one that you love. Being with God is part of that transformation of disposition. It reveals itself to us as we serve our neighbors generously. The holiness of God in us will always be a blessing to others. And then it continues to take hold of our hearts and our minds as we grow in Christ intentionally. And we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We begin to seek to practice it and it starts to have its way in us. Does in us what it will. And so here's what I want to invite you into this week. I want to invite you into continue reading Matthew 5 each day this week. But then add verses 21 through 48 to it. Don't skip verse 48. Read that. If you don't read any of the other ones, read that. And I want to invite you to continue to read Oswald Chambers' uh, My Utmost for His Highest. And I want to add something to this. I want to invite you to add the practice of repentance this week. And repentance, not simply in the sense of saying, I've, I've sinned, I need forgiveness, I've done something wrong. But repentance as acknowledging your need for the very disposition of Jesus himself to be placed in you. And this only happens by desire, expressed in prayer, and exercised by seeking Jesus more fully and deeply in every moment.